Hi, I'm Lisa Brenner, letting you know that my new film, Say My Name, will be available in selected theaters and on demand starting June 14th. It's a madcap British comedy about love, one night stands, and criminals who shoot themselves in the leg. To find out more, go to the Say My Name Movie Facebook page or simply search the hashtag Say My Name Movie on whatever social media you use, and you might just see me in a sex scene. That's all I'm saying. Get ready to join the Inglorious Trexperts live at San Diego Comic-Con as they boldly go to the greatest Comic-Con on Earth. We'll be there, will you? Meet all your favorite and least favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts as they talk Trek live and in person, only at San Diego Comic-Con. The 430 movie may be on hiatus, but we hope you'll join us at San Diego Comic-Con for a live recording of 1989 Week. As your favorite 430 movie hosts curate a fantasy theme week of 1989's greatest films. If you're a Star Wars fan, check out the Electric Surge Network's new podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, in which two diehard Star Wars fans discuss a galaxy far, far away with special guests every week. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, (laughs) We are back to finish part three of our epic three-part unmade Spider-Man movies and joining us completing this epic trilogy... uh, our guests, Mr. Ed Greer and Ashley Miller, who have joined us on such a journey, you guys. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah, and uh, because we took a little break in between episodes two and three here, since it was supposed to be two parts and expanded in real time to three parts, um, Steve's going to give us a little bit of a rundown on uh, recapping episodes two and three to bring us up to speed and the listeners. Right. Yeah, that before we get to the uh, return yep. of the king of these episodes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With about and, as many and endings. Much like <laughs> Return of the King, it, you think it's going to end, and then it just keeps going. <laughs> yeah, I guess previous previously on our <laughs> show, we had um, yeah, just really quick. Canon purchased the rights to Spider Man, and they gave the project to Tobe Hooper, but then it really went to Joe Zito, and Joe Zito is the one who really worked on it for a while. The original writers wrote it for Hooper, but then they were eventually fired. And then a few drafts had there was we went through lots and lots of drafts of Doc Ock, pretty much. And after the flops of Masters of the Universe and Superman Four, the budgets for the Spider-Man movies got smaller and smaller because Canon was struggling. Where we kind of last left off was the budgets went down to $1.5 million and Golan was starting to be forced out of canon and he was going to create 21st Century. I believe that's where we kind of left off. So, um, so pretty much June 1989, Batman comes out and it's this huge hit. And around that time, Golan is forced out of canon and he, according to Joe Zito, he was offered a golden parachute. So he took Spider-Man and also Captain America with him. And he went off and created 21st Century. And that's when he brought in Frank Lelogia. And we touched- We talked about that, yeah. Yeah, Doc Ock shoots Wiener with a bazooka. (laughs) Good old Wiener. And he steals the Goodyear blimp at the ending. And- um, The world is yours, Doc Ock. Yeah. Yeah. And then around 1990, um, Lelogia left, and then Neil, Neil Ruttenberg came in, and he's the writer of Deathstalker 2 and Prehysteria 3. Oh, man, Prehysteria 3. <laughs> and and uh, Ruttenberg wanted to get back to Peter Parker's roots and deal with his adolescent angst and wanted Doc Ock as the villain again. He wrote a draft, and around this time, Galan approached Sony Columbia, and he sells the worldwide worldwide rights, television rights, to Viacom and home video to Columbia TriStar. 
And then Golan submits Lelogia and Ruttenberg's script to Columbia to meet the terms of his 21st century's distribution deal with the studio. And then... And now we're pretty much caught up. And at this point, at the 1990 Cannes Film Festival, Corelco buys the rights from Golan. And Golan, and then Corelco pretty much tells Golan, like, hey, we're going to f- give you, we can finance a $50 million version of Spider-Man. And now this is 1990. And 21st Century makes, uh, Golan and 21st Century get a good deal. Uh, 21st Century gets $5 million, while Golan himself gets $1 million. And because of all of his years pushing the project, he just wants a producer credit. That's not just once. Besides all the money, he gets a producer credit. And so we'll fast forward to July 3rd, 1991. Terminator 2 Judgment Day is released and it grosses like over $500 million. And James Cameron is like the biggest director in the world. And so 91, 92, Corelco signs James Cameron. He comes on board to produce and direct Spider-Man. And, um, yeah, and then September 1st, 1993, Variety had the headline, Cameron delivers Spider-Man script. And so pretty much James Cameron last week handed in a script for the live-action Spider-Man, and he is now off on True Lies, and he cannot be reached. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, that ends very cryptically. Yes. Yeah, well, so uh, that brings us up to the, to the script, and we, we, will, we will touch more on after we discuss yeah, yeah, the we'll, script. Yeah, we'll get back to the yeah. behind-the-scenes stuff after okay. we go through this very long scriptment. Uh, and I was going to say, uh, I've been waiting to do this episode because we talk a bit about on the first episode of this podcast of kind of what was the unmade movie that got us interested when we were younger hmm. in unmade movies. And for mine was, uh, sorry listeners who had to hear me tell us already, when I was a kid, one of my mom's friends for my birthday got me like one share in Marvel stock, which seemed really cool when I was a kid. And apparently one share was enough that I would get their quarterly reports, which Marvel being Marvel made up like little comic books. Was it just like a boring form letter you read through? Hmm. And in that, it noted that James Cameron was making a Spider-Man movie. You know, this was before I was on the internet. I didn't really read Premiere or Entertainment Weekly or anything like that. So I was just like, yes, can't wait. And then at some point years later, I was like, James Cameron was making other movies. And I'm like, what happened to that Spider-Man movie? But now, before we get to Spider-Man, I have to ask you, I think, the question that is on everyone's mind, <laughs> which is, you owned a share of Marvel stock from that era. One share. And yet, in the, the time that has passed between then and now, I'm sure that stock is split and it became worth a lot more. And I guess what I'm asking is, do you could you personally independently finance a Spider-Man movie now? Or Well, this is before they went bankrupt. Okay. <laughs> so I think going bankrupt kind of uh, killed yeah, all of that. I don't, I don't even it. know if it like still exists as a thing I could own. I was even trying to find- You're going to find out have, you're yeah. independently wealthy. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think it's funny that uh, Golan um, walked around with the rights to Spider-Man in his pocket or, or put away in a drawer, much like uh, geeks like myself had Spider-Man comics in a drawer somewhere yeah. waiting for them to appreciate. And then he gets a million dollars for it. Like, it's the dream. It's it's mm-hmm. every geek's dream. Uh, I'm just curious. I was thinking about this earlier today. Um realizing that did you guys ever have subscriptions to comic books or were you always comic book shop guys I don't know I, my shop was like such a community you know what I mean yeah. that I, I kind of like that more than just opening it up but now that I think about it I, I probably would have preferred to have a subscription <laughs> it just it just you know but I was thinking that at one point I had a subscription to four different Spider-Mans because there was the amazing Spider-Man <laughs> mm-hmm. spectacular Spider-Man web, web of Spider-Man, Spider-Man and then McFarlane's Spider-Man and Spider-Man. before that there was Marvel Team-Up which Ooh. was almost always Spider-Man and, and what is it with team-up books that make a character really shine? Like when, when Batman Brave and the Bold, Batman Brave and the Bold was the best Batman comics for like 20 years. So mm-hmm. like what is it about team-ups, you know what I mean, with, with characters that make, them, that make them shine? Spider-Man shined if he was next to the thing. Well, think about, you know, just being the, the writer on those books. Like yeah. suddenly you don't have to worry about, you know, how you're going to connect this issue to the next issue and like, you know, how the villain is going to be different or how Batman's going to solve it this time or is Spidey going to shoot his webs? Uh, you know, you have another character to play with. You know, you have like a, you can ex- explore the sandbox a little bit yeah, more. Kind of out of continuity. Yeah. Well, it's also funny because this is going to come up 
in two of the uh, scripts we talk about today is the idea of teaming up villains. There's always yeah. this urge to get as many villains as possible into your movies. I don't entirely understand why, because it often, as we'll see, uh, when we get after the, I don't want to jump too far, but when we get past the Cameron one, um, there's just sort of a redundancy in villains in one of the scripts we'll talk about. Uh, but we'll, we'll just let's get into the uh, Cameron one. So it's not actually a script. He calls it a scriptment, but it's like 50-some pages, and it's very detailed and mm. has every scene in the movie and lots of dialogue. Well, that's a question. Ashley, you've been a writer for a long time. Have you ever encountered or wrote a scriptment? Uh, you know what? I, I think um, there's a... It's really just a matter of length. I mean, this is a this is a treatment, right? Except it's a treatment with dialogue in it. Yeah. Um, it's not really a screenplay, like by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know that scriptment really has a technical I don't, definition. I don't think it is. I mean, the the longest I ever wrote was a thirty page treatment for a sixty page pilot. But yeah. So which is about the same, you know, percentage. I think of when you're declaring but, your WGA dues and you have to scroll through for what it's a treatment. It, I don't. It's I don't like know you if would say, is like, be paid for a treatment." For yeah. This. <laughs> Unless you're no, you're Jim Cameron. And you can get somebody to pay you like your for a screenplay for this. Now, I don't know how you shoot it unless, of course, you're Jim Cameron. Yeah. You go out and, I know what I was going to do. It is curious that he mm. did this. I guess this was faster than writing the script. I don't know. For me, personally, thinking of the outline is the hard part. And then once, if you've got a scene-by-scene outline, writing the actual script doesn't take that well, long. But don't forget, uh, Cameron, first of all, is an excellent writer. And secondly, famously fast and famously prolific. Um, there is a, a story, and it's true, uh, that he wrote Aliens, The Terminator, and Rambo First Blood Part Two simultaneously, <laughs> with like literally with a with a uh, with a lazy Susan that had three different typewriters on it, and he would just spin them, and he would write, spin them, and he would write, and he finished them all at about the same time. I like to imagine that he. <laughs> He was like, I need a lazy Susan. Not like he had a lazy Susan <laughs> and figured out the system. Right. But it was like, well, no, he went to the store. Like he solved the problem. Yeah. It's like he's well, an engineer, right? Well, he goes, yeah. oh. He probably, yeah, probably had his, yeah. Actually, yeah, what I was saying, he probably had his brother build the lazy <laughs> yeah, Susan no. and uh, he drew, he go drew, deep sea. Yeah, and... <laughs> he drew a detailed blueprint. He had his brother build it with, with some guys from the set departments for all of his movies. Yeah. Stan Winston built that <laughs> lazy Susan. That's right. His Rambo script is fantastic, <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah. yeah. It's just, got shades of Terminator 2 in it, if you, I mean, if you all, really look like, at it. They all kind of feel, on some level or another, like each other. It's like, if, mm. you, if you read all three of them, you go, oh, yeah, of course you wrote all three of them at the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He basically wrote the, three, the, same, the same movie three times. Well, in throwing more love at uh, Cameron, um, around this time, Stan Lee, there's a quote from him where he notes... Uh, about Cameron, that he's not just a writer who's going to get the assignment and going to have to learn who Spider-Man is, to which end Cameron noted about himself, I basically learned how to draw comics by copying the characters out of Marvel Comics. I would spend long hours drawing Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk. Uh, so this was, he was a Spider-Man fan. Like, after Terminator 2, as Steve noted, that was a huge hit. I mean, so was Terminator and Aliens. And even The Abyss, which is kind of remembered like it was a flop. I don't think it mm, was. No. I think it was still actually a huge hit. Um, it had just been so expensive and was like a troubled production. So, uh, you know, he already was king of the world. He could do anything he wanted. So it's interesting that he wanted to do Spider-Man. And to kind of show where his head is at, during the True Lies press tour, when talking about how he might make a Spider-Man, he said, one of the things that really interests me, possibly in Spider-Man, uh, is going in some very bizarre going into some very bizarre surreal imagery that can only be done using computer generated images so he was kind of looking to do a whacked out version of spider-man uh which we'll see some of mm -hmm. when we get into the scriptment um and so we got scripts for you guys uh broken up here we'll read out some scenes i would just like to read basically the first two and a half page openings of okay. the scriptment. So you guys ready? We're ready. <laughs> okay, I will read the blocking. So, fade in. A geometrical pattern fills the screen, silver threads in the moonlight. Part of Spider-Man's intricate web. It moves slightly and we see behind it. A glint of an eye, pulling back two eyes, blinking in the darkness, behind a mesh of fishnet material, continuing to pull back to reveal a face. A face shrouded in darkness, covered by a concentric web-like pattern. 
Behind the mesh, we catch a hint of features, not much. It is the eyes which concern or command our attention. Pulling back, head and shoulders, the Black Knight background. Wider still revealing a muscular silhouetted figure, sitting cross-legged in zen-like composure. The arms are straight down, between the legs. Behind the figure is some kind of steel structure. But wait, we pull back, city lights have come into our view, and now skyscrapers, but they are above us, sticking down into frame like the mothership in Close Encounters. Camera rotates now, 180 degrees, putting the city where it belongs, below us, and revealing that the figure is hanging by his hands by a thread-like wire, cross-legged and chilled out. Upside down, he is wearing a form-hugging bodysuit, hard to make out the details in the moonlight. Who is this wacko? Keep pulling back. The figure is hanging like a spider from a radio mast high above. Manhattan. There are these are the familiar landmarks, Pan Am, Chrysler Buildings, Empire State Building. Welcome to one of my favorite night spots. The service is slow, but the thing I like about it, it's not usually too crowded. The Empire State Building is lower than us, so there is only one place we could be. 1,400 feet up above the street on the radio mast of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, a quarter mile of, a quarter mile of below us. Traffic moves like corpuscles of light through a circulatory system of the city. We pull back further, orbiting now in a dizzying panorama of the greatest city on this planet until the silhouetted figure is tiny as well, a bug. It all looks so civilized from up here, doesn't it? Like there's some kind of logic to it all. It's all so clear, but you get down there on the street and nothing's clear. The street, cabs and cops, people on the move, humanity in all its variated glory, from stock brokers to hookers, priests to junkies, a corner newsstand, pushing in on a stack of Newsweeks. Close on the top one, the cover is a grainy long-lens black-and-white shot, like a UFO photo, of a guy in tights apparently crawling up the side of the building. The headline reads, The Spider-Man? Hero or Vigilante? An arm wearing a red... uh, Sorry for my reading, there's... People know there's some watermarks on this script, so sometimes it's hard to see. Uh, news guy whirls as an arm slaps two bucks on the counter and grabs a Newsweek. The owner rushes out the door, looks on top of his kiosk. There's nothing there. He looks up all around, nothing. He grins and holds a fist to the air. All right! <laughs> Cut to the top of the World Trade Center. That that was the owner being excited to realize that Spider-Man bought a Newsweek, in case that was not apparent. Still hanging, he pulls the Newsweek out of his belt and stares at the cover in the moonlight. How can I expect them to get it? I don't even get it. I do wish they'd at least get my name right. It's Spider-Man, not THE Spider-Man. Jeez, boneheads. I need a better publicist. He reads the magazine, or rips the magazine easily in half, then quarters, then eighths. Somewhere in here we realize that this takes more strength in the hands than you or I have. He releases the stamp-sized shreds. Camera drifts with them as they flutter down over the city like confetti. Wouldn't they have kittens if they knew Spider-Man wasn't even a man? Just a kid named... Peter! And then we cut to flashback. (laughs) That was Aunt May yelling that. Uh, But interesting opening. (laughs) Yeah. Um... I love, love the expressions, wouldn't they have kittens if they knew? <laughs> um, man. Yeah, but then getting right into things. So now this is kind of the Peter that we know from the Sam Raimi movies. He's in high school. Um, if some people don't remember in our previous scripts we talked about in the last episodes, he was often in college. Mm-hmm. Um, he's living with Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Uh some of the descriptions that it's, it's funny reading this as a script and not a script because usually in a script the blocking is often unless you're like Shane Black it's kind of irrelevant but uh, Cameron's really writing all this for obviously knowing that somebody's going to be reading it and trying to sell it to him but in his description of Peter he's like sports forget it bunch of jock boneheads crashing into each other like stag elk and rut senseless violence girls or girls good in theory but how do you talk to them <laughs> dancing no way he tried it once not a pretty sight peter is a virgin and apt to remain that way for a while he's your basic sexually pent-up adolescent <laughs> <laughs> well I mean, aren't we all <laughs> yeah the the and i think what one thing i got out of reading this this version was 
uh, Spider-Man's always been an apt metaphor for like puberty and you know because like all these hairs and goo comes oh, out. This of one's and really this, gonna get you know, into it. But this, oh my god, this yeah. is Cameron locked in on that idea like a laser. Well, I mean, overall, not we don't want to jump ahead to spoil anything, but like just overall, uh, this is interesting. Just from the Spider-Man movie we ended up getting, or any of the Spider-Man movies we ended up getting, uh, is this one. Uh, I wouldn't say it's dark. It's not like a Christopher Nolan Batman movie, but he's really approaching the idea uh, a little bit almost Wolfman style, not as Wolfman as that very early Spider-Man script you remember us talking about where he turns into like Brundlefly. But the idea that getting infected by the radioactive spiders like bringing out the dark side and that he could kind of go either way and it's turning him like violent yeah and a lot of puberty well, metaphor well stuff. some of them and some of them and this one also has a little bit uh we're, i guess we're gonna get to it but a little bit of that uh he is a real spider oh yeah man. definitely yeah you know what i mean there's a lot of spidery like a stuff. comma or like <laughs> emphasis <laughs> it's like there's a lot of spidery jazz going on in his head that don't that doesn't have anything to do with anything else it's like dude i'm kind of a spider in a teenager's but i was a mm-hmm. teenage spider well when you break it down um and I'll, I'll try not to get too far ahead of kind of where we are in the in the story but I think, number one, Cameron is trying to establish some kind of an inner conflict for Peter about his about his powers, something that he is contending with. And it's weird because even though it's internal, it's actually a very external concern, right? Because the concern is, is really about what the powers do to him versus how he uses his powers, which are two totally different things. But it's fascinating that we see elsewhere, I mean, this definitely becomes a theme, right? This is a story where we keep meeting people who... Um, are nobodies who become somebody, who have no power, who gain power, um, who have different ideas of what it means to use power, right? So all of the uh, the themes that we normally associate with Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, um, become very present in this story, and yet it's never really articulated. Um, and I also kind of found, and even here in the beginning, um, and it's something that makes me look at the Sam Raimi movies in a completely different way, and I, and I love those films, that what Sam Raimi did, that I don't think that anybody else really did, and the reason why I think those movies made so much money, um, is he brought the joy of being Spider-Man to the franchise. And there's really none of that here. Um, it's definitely a, a story about being an adolescent, uh, but it is... It is missing um, that that purity, that innocence uh, that that Raimi, I think, traffics in so just easily uh, without making what his movies without making his movies feel completely whimsical. Like they have weight too. It's it's fascinating. It tells us that that adapting Spider Man, even if you're Jim Cameron, I don't know if it's an obvious exercise. We look mm. at the Sam Raimi movies and go, well, you know, of course, that's how you do Spider Man. Mm, yeah. You know what, kids? That's not necessarily how you do Spider Man. Yeah, there there were yeah, they banded about a bunch of different ways to show him being Spider Man, a bunch of different ways to show uh his care for his community. Like sometimes he's like stopping people from stealing stuff. So he's like this representative of the student of the status quo. Sometimes he's like a real rebel, you know, and then some of the I think the new movies are hitting a, a good stride of I'm a rebel, but the like there's people higher up than me and I'm not necessarily doing the right thing in their eyes. There's still always this little push and pull, you know what I mean? A, a friendly neighborhood. But yeah, uh, yeah this this guy this guy really, uh, he's he is a Spider-Man that's kind of, yeah, he's kind of, he is dark Spider-Man. I think this it is, is the kind darkest of, you're one. You're saying it's like Sam Raimi, I think Sam Raimi <laughs> looked at the character and he's like, that would be so much fun. If yeah. I had those powers, yeah. that would be great. Yeah. And James Cameron being James Cameron and having his kind of like engineer brain, I think mm. he's like, well, what would really happen if you had these powers? Maybe it would, might suck sometimes. Uh, and he had bit more of a downer approach to it at times it's not a totally downer story but it definitely things will we'll just keep going we'll see well, well also just really quick around this time it was like that era of that grunge music which was pretty if you read if you go back and listen to it there are kids <laughs> with their pearl jam yeah the, the sound garden the alice in chains the screaming trees and all that it was just it was a very you know a time of all the all the teenagers were full of angst and it looks like he is doing the angst 
you know, teenager yeah. that really fits. You know, this is the Spider-Man that goes to Lollapalooza. Well, it, <laughs> you know, well, and uh, so, building off that, swinging from. Uh, and some of this, <laughs> I think, is just that this was 25 years ago. But uh, as this next thing I'm about to read will highlight, this one also has a lot of kind of like. There's almost sort of like a dangerous, uh, I don't know, incel quality to Peter at times. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so this one, Mary Jane Watson is the love interest in this one. Um, and we meet her, uh, and she wants to be Peter's lab partner because her parents won't buy her a car if she doesn't get a B average. Um, and this is Cameron's description of, you know, Peter's feelings about her is that Peter oscillates between despising her and fantasizing about saving her from a burning building so she will be eternally grateful and maybe even kiss him. Um, I don't know. Was that cool in 93? <laughs> <laughs> um, another weird thing about this script, though, is because I would say this is largely pretty, compared to some of the stuff we'd read, uh, this is a pretty faithful adaptation of Spider-Man. But a lot of the character names are different for reasons I don't quite like, know. Like Flash? Like, Flash's mm. name is Nathan McCreary. Like, what did he have against some dude named Nathan That's McCreary. what I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. I'm right? like, was Nathan yeah. McCreary the Nathan McCreary, are you out there? Do you have a Twitter school? handle? Uh, uh, reach out, brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think one time I broke Jimmy C's pencils yeah. one time. <laughs> was that? Oh, God, that's crazy. Oh, <laughs> was that Jim Cameron? Uh, and then, uh, clearly directly lifted for Raimi's movie from this is the way Peter gets his powers in this is the school's taking a tour of the university. Um, in Raimi's, I believe that they're, they're showing him an experiment they're doing on a bunch of different spiders and they're like, we're mashing all their genes together. Um, which is just a simplified version of what Cameron had where they were doing genetic experiments on fruit flies, moving their genes around. And it's the same bit where, you know, they're like, oh, there's 10 fruit flies. And Peter's like, I only count nine. And then we cut mm -hmm. to one of the fruit flies flying around. But then the fruit fly is eaten by a spider. And then that spider bites Peter, which mm. I see why they simplified the that. Get rid of that. Yeah. Yeah. Law of conservation of fruit flies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now we've got to, uh, I don't know, did I? Imagine if it had been a radioactive fruit fly that had Given him powers, so he's like fruit fly, fruit fly? <laughs> not yeah. the fruit fly, man. The proportional strength and speed of a fruit fly. Well, there's there's been a few uh, people uh, named the fly in different comics and stuff. That's and, true. And if you were very faithful to what flies can do, they'd, they'd at least be very fast. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Ask Brundlefly. Yeah. Ask Jeff Gold. Yeah. Uh, but now, so Peter gets bit. He goes home, much like in the Raimi movie, and then he transforms and. Uh, this is we start getting to some of the, I think that weird shit that Cameron had talked about he wanted to do for mm. the movie just to read a couple paragraphs here. Uh, he is racked by convulsive tr tremor like a seizure. He's plunged into a psychotropic state, an abyss of dark visions which yawns beneath him. He falls into the maelstrom barraged by hallucinatory manifestations, disturbing images of webs from a POV as if crawling over them, glistening eyes in the dark, sudden predatory lunges, prey struggling hopelessly to escape, a David Lynch biohor montage of spider world, shadowy images of rooftops crawling over buildings and fences, leaping through the air. Peter awakens in the sunlight. He opens his eyes, relieved to be out of the nightmare. That was just a dream. He blinks, looking around and screams. He's about 80 feet up high, uh, 80 feet up in the air, high above the tension tower, wearing only his underwear. Below him, morning traffic moves along the street. Nobody looks up. Very Wolfman-like, uh, mm. minus mm -hmm. discovering that you killed yeah. a deer or something well, yeah. in the zoo. It, Although, if he had killed a deer... It would have been awesome. awesome. Yeah. Right. He's well, covered in blood, and then he's like holding this deer head. He's well, like, what it, the? Yeah. It just, from the, from that scene description, it sounds like the uh, the fruit fly took some acid. Yes. Then got <laughs> eaten yeah. by the spider. Get a little pe peyote freak out. A little American werewolf in London also yeah. waking up. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of more body horror and getting into Ed's mm -hmm. uh, puberty-ness here, so then he goes back home, and his like, wrists kind of hurt. Uh and he sneaks in, Aunt May and Ben don't notice, and he goes back to sleep. Um, the next day, tight on Peter as he wakes up, he opens his eyes cautionally, not knowing what to expect. 
pulled back to reveal he is still in bed. All is normal. He breathes a sigh of relief. In fact, he feels pretty good. Lots of energy. He pulls the covers back and something is causing the sheet to stick to him. He lifts it, revealing a sticky white mask completely covering him, gluing him to his bedding. It is some silky substance webbing him into the covers. He cries out in dismay, struggling to free himself from the gluey strands. Where did it come from? He notices his wrists. <laughs> they are oozing a pearlescent white fluid from almost invisible slits about a quarter inch long. He pushes on the skin next to one of the slits and a dark shape the size and color of a thorn emerges from beneath his skin. It shoots a jet of liquid silk into his face. Peter screams <laughs> at the top of his lungs. You know, here's the scene that I want to see in this movie. Yeah. That if it were my movie, I would write and I would shoot and then I would be forced to cut it. It would be uh, Aunt May. Doing the laundry. Yeah. Washing the sheet. Well, Ben, it looks like it finally happened. <laughs> oh, don't take a black light to this kid's room. <laughs> um, it's like outer space in there. Yeah. <laughs> What's he doing? Um, Didn't realize we got HBO. So now we cut back to school, uh, and Peter's decided that he wants to study spiders with his lab assignment with Mary mm. Jane's. As we know, it's very much about being a spider in this one. He's like, now I need to everything, learn everything I can about spiders. Um, and then we get some of the standard fun stuff where he goes to a junkyard to test out his abilities. Um, junkyards are big in these movies. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's a nice place to go. Have, have, has anyone here lived near a junkyard? I, I no. know. Like, I remember the one time I had to dispose of something at a junkyard. I had that moment where I'm like, where? Where's a junkyard? Like in movies and TV dog? shows. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Where, where's the Where's the standby me dog? Where that's, am I gonna, oh, that is always supposed Where am to be I going to bring the Iron Giant when I find him in my barn? <laughs> <laughs> you leave him in your barn, man. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. Um, and then that night, uh, while he's doing his homework, he feels beckoned by a knight. This is another theme that's kind of going in, I guess, part of being a spider, even though I don't know if spiders are necessarily nocturnal. I'm sure some are. Um, but he's very much mm -hmm. beckoned by the knight. The knight is speaking to him. Uh, and he climbs up on the roof. And kind of one of the few moments of where it does seem like he's having fun being Spider-Man uh, is where he's jumping around. Um, although, wait, I wanted to read a little bit about this, the, the urges he's feeling. We explore the idea <laughs> that the lure of the dark replaces fear of the dark, that the dark becomes a comforting, nurturing place for Peter rather than a place of dread and uncertainty. He feels at home in the dark, secure there. It is a place he seeks for solace, for peace. Everything's backward for him. Night becomes day. Heights previously terrifying now attract him. The air becomes as water. He swims weightless where other mortals would plummet and break. He is at home in places others fear, and it stirs something dark inside him, a predatory urge, uh, <laughs> which is then followed by he goes to Mary Jane's house. I don't know if I like a predatory urge. Oh. He's followed by... <laughs> He goes to Mary Jane's house, drops down from the roof and looks in her window. She turns off the light, thinking she is unobserved, strips off her clothes. She slips into bed in just her panties and a t-shirt. But even this forbidden glimpse is too much for Peter. He loses his concentration and with his palm grip on the wall. Uh, so he loses his grip on the wall being like, whoa, 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 uh, and crashes into the rose bushes. He's bounding into the darkness and light comes on, as a light comes on in the house behind him. So more and more like Creeper, Peter. Very very William Baldwin and Slither. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Joe Esterhouse's Spider-Man. Oh, Where's yeah. that movie? <laughs> we get there later. Come on, Joe. Um, so... Then Uncle Ben gets laid off. Uh, oh, they probably need some money. Um, but rather than the normal things we expect of him going to, like, wrestle or whatever, he decides to make a spy sign that says Spider-Man and goes busking. So he's just like, hey, look at me do crazy <laughs> Spider-Man tricks. Uh, a guy asks Peter if Peter does parties. He'll give him 50 bucks, but says, like, you need a better costume, kid. Um, so then Speed Peter designs his own costume. Oh, another detail... I think is really interesting um, is that he he like in Raimi's thing he shoots just webs out of his wrists but he guess he he's smart enough to realize like well that's gonna be weird if I'm doing that at a kid's party mm. so he makes 
fake web shooters that go oh. over his wrist so it looks like it's like a gizmo he invented. Okay, though, uh, I, <laughs> gee, this is, I completely get, like, I can see Cameron sitting there going, oh, man, uh, that is going to look weird. And, like, what's the explanation? I know, and now I'll sort of square the circle with, like, I think he's trying to solve, like, the one of the things that I think is inherently a problem with Spider-Man as a creation is that he both has, like, you know the uh, the the proportional strength and speed of a of a spider and all the other cool abilities, and he is also apparently enough of a super genius that he can just make this shit. He's like Tony right? Stark, and <laughs> also build the machine that projects it and mm-hmm. the and the the subtle control mechanisms that allow. So you know it's almost like you know the organic web shooter. I think is a sort of a, a brilliant innovation, and then. There's just this thing with like the wrist. I'm like, who cares at that point? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's really it's just it's who cares. It's like it's a it's a question that nobody would be yeah. asking. Mm-hmm. And does it sound less weird if like some high school student says, "Well, you know what? I've designed these web shooters that shoot out <laughs> like this material that is incredibly strong that I can swing around on that sticks to things." And I mean. How many, you know, yeah, how many companies oh, okay. are like are beating I'm not a path to his anymore. door? Right? Yeah. 3M is like you. Well, yeah, and, <laughs> that explanation like that like you me. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is one of many Spider many intern. tries. Yeah, yeah. This is one of many tries to like fix it. Yeah. You know, and uh, there was one in a, a Ultimate uh, in the comics version, in Ultimate's comics version. It was that when he got bit by the spider, his intense spideriness kind of in this. Cameron-esque way, the intense spideriness mm-hmm. of it put him in this weird trance and he went home and he just started beautiful minding a bunch of stuff. And in that burst of genius, uh, he figured out the thing. And then it sort of faded a little bit, but he had the devices, which is eh, kind of silly, but at the same time kind of like, okay, this, this, he, got, he became a spider genius for a minute. Right. Uh, but but And it takes away... You know, but it, it, it takes away, it, it, it takes away that it, it takes away that you know ridiculous like he's this kid who can do this super scientific thing. Well, why aren't you making a bunch of money? Why why does your uncle Ben have to always get carjacked? Why right. does he have to drive himself anywhere? Stupid! You have the, you have the new epoxy. Sell it to whoever. <laughs> yeah. You invented the goddamn post-it. Notes. I mean, the, Go out there and that's money. The, the flex seal dude is raking yeah. it in. You yeah, can't exactly. figure out how to you know put it on the bottom of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Make a boat. With yeah. So so yeah, it takes away that. You know what I mean? But and this this sort of thing. Oh, it's freaky. That takes away, like, why wouldn't you do something with this stuff? Well, it's freaky. So I think people have always tried to square mm-hmm. the freakiness and the uh, underachieverness of, of Peter Parker That's by just, doing was, these weird stuff. How much stuff. does he have to eat to, like, replace the matter that he's using in his webs? I feel like he'd just constantly be eating turkey slices and chicken <laughs> breasts. <laughs> it's more protein. All right. So now, you know, he's he's busking, going to kids' parties. Spider-Man gradually becomes, like, mildly famous, appearing on a gong show-like program. As the unknown comic? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Paper bag on his head. Um, and then we cut to an opulent mansion where we're going to meet our villain, who's Electro, but for some reason is not <laughs> named Max Dillon. He's named Carlton Strand. Uh, and let's read this scene, right. you guys. Um we reveal a figure in the chair. This is Carlton Strand. He is in his early 40s and exudes power from every pore. He is wearing a very expensive custom tailor suit. His hair is slicked back and very GQ. His nails are manicured. His watch is platinum. He is the image of vast wealth attained, not inherited. Carlton Strand. You think Trump was big? This guy was bigger. There he was, sitting like a big fat spider at the center of its web, power and megabucks. And way out at the edge, he feels this little vibration. Strand's eyes are piercing, blazing with a malevolent intelligence. He waves one hand minutely and the TV set goes off. A man enters the room, a square-jawed, solid-looking guy with a powerful build named Boyd. Find out everything you can about this Spider-Man. Boyd nods and exits. Cut back to Spider-Man, hanging from the radio tower of the World Trade Center. We will return periodically throughout the film to this image of him. But he wasn't always Carlton Strand, any more than I was always your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. At one time, he was just a punk named Carl, a two-time loser about to go down for the third time. It was about 10 years ago that Strand got his cosmic tap on the shoulder. 10 years ago, New Mexico <laughs> desert. Um, <laughs> yeah, then we get a... Uh, <laughs> then we 
we get a brief little flashback origin of Strand where he and another guy had like robbed a bank, running away from the police. He runs out. What's interesting, he runs out on what's called the Lightning Field, which is a conceptual art piece designed to attract lightning. I just find that art piece. <laughs> Some uh, enlightening blasts him. He gets fried. Um, <laughs> Inceptual death trap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and then there's some like fun kind of James Cameron-y stuff as he's like realizing how his powers work. Like He goes to a truck that's like dead and he touches the car battery and the truck comes to life. Um, and he's also a very creepy villain for like a what would have been a family superhero movie because then he goes and confronts like his old gang who betrayed him and he like puts his hand on the gang's leader and like stops his heart using his like electrical power and then he's just like ah ha ha and then starts it again yelling like clear um, I don't know about you guys, but the idea of my heart being shocked, dead, uh, I, I find unpleasant. <laughs> Not into it. On the next exciting episode yeah. of Best Movies Never Made. Hot takes. Hot takes. Shocking we, we bad. We do our version of Flatliners. Not cool. <laughs> um, here's like a little description of how his powers kind of work. Uh, he can sense electrical energy as well. Uh, the world to him has been transformed. Instead of matter, solid things, he sees energy, a pulsing web of electrical fields. He can sense the, sense the current in the wires in the walls. By laying his hands on a telephone wire, he can hear the conversation. By touching a computer, he can download the data from its hard drive. His brain itself has been energized, and he is now able to follow and analyze all these signals. The world is a pulsing circulatory system of electrical and electrical magnetic currents and waves. In fact, he can't shut it out. Wow, that's pretty sick. So he's like Neo from The Matrix meets Richard Pryor from Superman 3. <laughs> and there's also a junkyard, so... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. My, here's the thing with this guy. So, junkyard connections. <laughs> um, it's a really fascinating setup. It's an interesting suite of powers. But there's kind of a huge problem in the heart of this movie with Carlton Strand, which is... For the most of the story, where it's story moving forward, he is sitting on his ass in his apartment, in his penthouse, mm. right? He doesn't really seem to want anything specific. He doesn't really do anything. So Cameron lays out, like, oh, this is what he can do, and these are all his powers. But we don't really actually see any of this on its feet. I would have been fascinated to see how he would have dramatized any of that and made it really present in the storytelling. Because he doesn't ever seem to emerge as a physical threat to Spider-Man, um, as something that Spider-Man has to has to deal with. I mean, we'll get to that yeah, like, yeah. when we get towards the end. But it's but it's interesting to me that that he just kind of sits there. No, no uh, up here, uh, upon hearing all this, and I, and I'd say this this part right here too that you probably uh, you know uh, it's he's used his this ability to make a two bit crime syndicate into a mega player and take him take him uh, you know take him uh, legit. He's become like yeah, the whole bigger than well, Trump. Like, right. But it's, it's, why do you care? Uh, <laughs> like I, I don't understand like, why he cares about Spider Man. The, even the, the end choice should have. And this is all kind of Monday morning quarterbacking on a game nobody ever played. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, that's a that's a great story. That should be the story. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. moving moving in mm-hmm. a in a way that kind of takes like this movie and moves well, it forward. Why, like, that's his objective. In Raimi's right? movies, we always see our villain become the villain and. Mm. That's happening during the body of the film, not right. years beforehand. Yeah, because he's, I mean, that doesn't really spoil anything, don't want to get too far ahead, but he's already at the top. Yeah. It's like, whereas Doc Ock in the other scripts was always like, oh, I need this mm. thing so I can, like, mm-hmm. build my she- machine and, and Spider do Spider-Man isn't even a threat to him. He's like, well, that seems pretty cool. Let's talk to that guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. When, when, the vil- when the hero is, a, it's, it's always really terrible in movies where the villain is an obvious non-physical threat to the hero. We don't have that here. This dude's, this dude's badass, but you're right. They don't really, they, it's hard to dramatize that, I guess, when you're worried about him manipulating data and stuff. Yeah. You know? It's, it's well, almost like they're setting up a hacker movie yeah. where somebody's right, going to yeah. hack against it's this like, guy. Apparently, his big thing is he just oh, likes a... to shock his girlfriend while she's Yeah, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, let's go. read that <laughs> scene. Oh, we got that scene. You got oh, some lines in here, too, Steve. Yeah. All right. So, uh, uh, where do we want to start? Uh, well, really quick while you do oh, that, yeah. is he, so is he somewhat part kingpin? I mean, you guys are more of the comic book guys. Than oh, oh, there's shades of, I def, there's shades of that. 
very much so. So yeah. this this appears to be their attempt to take the kingpin and make him more than a fat dude with a hard on for crime. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I'm fat and I trade spices. You know what I mean? To, to, to the to the audience in 1993, I don't think they would find that that interesting. So they go, oh, we'll make him, you know, make him cool and big and strong and also super intelligent and give him cool powers too that are a physical threat to Spider-Man. Although, as mm. as was kind of hinted at. The fact that he can't shut it off. So yeah. uh, this scene, um, Strand's mansion, a woman enters the room. She is stunningly beautiful, the kind of consort you would expect from a man of wealth, power, and taste. This is Cordelia. He motions her to him, and she glides over but stops a foot away. I must say, dear, you look very usable tonight. <laughs> she smiles playfully. He circles her, almost touching her. His hands move over her, inches from her skin. He leans close and breathes her scent, but he can't touch her. Touch her. She opens her silk robe. Underneath, she is wearing a rubber wetsuit. He touches the rubber, running his fingertips over her. We hear a faint crackling of electricity. She seems both excited and apprehensive. I want you, not rubber. No, Carl. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Crushing it, Steve. <laughs> this is what it's like to go do a so commercial again? audition. By the way, this is exactly what it's like. You're giving your all, and they're like, Steve, yes. that was great. <laughs> Can you hit the no a little bit harder and bring down the Carl? Uh, <laughs> Give me three times. Go three times. Same <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Strand doesn't like the concept of no. He takes her in his arms and kisses her with passion and more. He, her hair stands straight out with electric, uh, electrostatic charge. She begins to convulse a tiny, in tiny shivers at first and then like an epileptic. Suddenly she goes limp. Her eyes stare fixedly at the ceiling. Shit. <laughs> he drops her on the couch, stands there in misery and isolation. Strand has the Midas touch. He has everything and nothing. His electrical sense gives him the power to manipulate computer bank transfers, the stock market, etc., to make himself a billionaire, to sit at the center of the world's greatest electronic web and fuel its vibra- feel its vibrations. So he has everything, but he cannot touch another person or shake hands without a great effort of will to control his electrical potential. If he lets his guard down... In an intimate moment with a woman, he will kill her with a high voltage discharge. <laughs> and by discharge, he means yeah. he's a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus. <laughs> His love is deadly. She is so he has learned to live without love, without the comfort of human touch, emotion, or contact. So he has nothing. He quickly unzips the front of her wetsuit and puts his hands under the rubber. Zap! Her body twitches. He steps back, scowling, impatient. Her eyes flutter open and she struggles to breathe. I don't know how much more of this I could take, Carl. (laughs) Uh, That was great again, Steve. When we go again, less of a question on Carl. (laughs) That's fantastic. All right. Back to our hero. Meanwhile, Peter has started slipping at school and every... All his classes except for his spider project because he's still super interested in spiders. Is that your spider genius? It's it's a meme. Um, and now continuing down this dark path. So then Peter sees Flash slap Mary Jane. Uh, Spider-Man beats the shit out of Flash, <laughs> kind of like about to kill him, and then ends up focusing his rage on uh, Flash's Porsche, which he like crushes with a signpost. He's becoming freaked out by how much he enjoyed it, too. Uh, so he goes home to talk to Uncle Ben, get some advice. But And I love this little thing uh, as far as dating the time period. Ben's trying to give him advice, and Peter's like knows he's trying to help, but he's saying, but how can he tell him what is going on in his head? Being a teenager in the 90s is complex. (laughs) Ben is obviously thinking drugs, sex, gangs, but the Spider-Man thing would be impossible to explain. Uh, 
and more of this. So Peter goes out again as Spider-Man, and he's like looking in the window of an apartment, and he sees a drunk guy beating the crap out of his wife in a drunken rage. So he breaks in and punches the guy, but then the woman gets mad and starts beating him over the head with a spi- frying pan. So he's like, what the, and leaves. Uh, people sure are complex. He has the physical powers, <laughs> but not the wisdom yet. I still say he probably did the right thing there. Um, I guess not cool to break into people's apartments, but <laughs> well, I, the, it's I, wrong and it shouldn't be if done. If anybody can lay hands on this script, man, the inordinate amount of time that it takes Peter to make up his mind as to whether or not to intervene. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's like this much on the page for the viewers at home. It's yes, a lot. Should I? Shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. Um, so then Peter goes on a variety show, uh, and when he's backstage, he's approached by Cordelia, who hands him a note that says, there are others like you. So he gets intrigued, and he tries to follow her. Uh, he gets intercepted by Boyd. Uh, he goes to punch Boyd, and all of a sudden we realize, it's Sandman! In fact, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if Cordelia just turned out to be an agent? And... <laughs> <laughs> and she just wanted to wanted him to be a client. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. hey, there's lots of entertainers out there just like you. Oh, wow. Know, acrobats. Cirque du Soleil, have you heard of it? Yeah. It's going to be huge, kid. Um, Cameron even writes, enter Sandman when uh, he exit. reveals it. That's great. Yeah. But again, he's not Flint Marco. His name's Boyd, but he's Sandman. And he's he's very T-1000 in mm-hmm. this. So yeah. what's, what's interesting yeah. is, because I was looking at this, it's like you have Sandman, you have Electro, and I was like, wow, those are two perfect villains for Cameron because, A, he's obsessed with liquid people, so now he could do that with <laughs> Sandman. And he's obsessed with lightning because I think his company is Lightning Storm. So it's lots it was, of uh, electricity yeah. in the Terminator movies. Yeah, yeah. so this was like perfect. No, but he is very uh, T-1000. In fact, even here, uh, let's see... When Peter's like attacking him, he says his face dissolves again into sand, which runs down his whole body, losing its form, dropping into a puddle of sand, which drains through a grate. Um, very team thousand. So he agrees. That's yeah. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> um, let's see. Now we kind of start getting into more of the origin stuff. Uh, Uncle Ben drives Peter to meet with a sleazy agent who doesn't pay him. There's, again, that, you know, not my job mm. uh, when the guy robs the sleazy agent. Um, he tracks down. Uh, the, oh, th- then that guy gets away, kills Uncle Ben. He tracks him down, all the stuff we're used to. Um, the guy calls Spider-Man a fag. I don't know why. I thought that was... Because <laughs> he's a yeah. dick. Yeah, it's yeah. true. <laughs> now you're like... Yeah. That guy. I think I think that might have been proto wokeness on Cameron's yeah, part. Like the, exactly. the villain feels this way. Yeah. <laughs> um Well though, you know, the whole thing with Uncle Ben, man, it's it's there and yet it doesn't feel important. Which is mm-hmm. a weird thing to say about a Spider Man story. Like, he is already so far into his journey yeah, and doing far. his thing that, you know, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, never really lands anywhere on him. Mm-hmm. And so the death of Uncle Ben feels in this scriptment like it's just a checkbox that's just been checked off. You could cut it out of this scriptment and nothing else about the film would change. Yeah. Is this the one where it's just like emblazoned on a bank or something? Was that one of the other ones? Uh, there, there was a draft of one of these yeah. where like the motto of some bank that Spider-Man was like spawn <laughs> on top of, you know, like uh, or Spider-Man was like Spider-Man rather. Uh, you know, Spider-Man was Spider-Maning on top of this bank and, and his, his uncle had died and the camera zooms in on the logo or the motto of this bank and it's like with great power comes great responsibility. So in that draft, I don't know if it's this one, but one of these damn drafts, it's, it's like, oh my God. You, yeah. <laughs> it's just like Ronald McDonald's like, slogan or something. Were you just looking around and, and looking for something to be your slogan and you just sort of saw this? Right. It, it, yeah, it, it <laughs> I could, love Lamp. It, it could have yeah. been plop, plop, fizz, fizz. You know, like, what? So that that's that's just egregious. Like, at, and screenwriting and screenwriting yeah. par, parlance like, or whatever. That's like, I'm loving it. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you are. Yeah. <laughs> McRib is back. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a very it's a very good point actually because later on there's a situation where he could have this father figure and I thought that's where all the the drama was going to come in of replacing Uncle Ben but yeah you're right it's completely <laughs> doesn't work. Well then so 
he doesn't kill that guy, even though he wants to. He gives him to the police. The police try to arrest him, and he gets away, and this kind of begins the whole idea that he's a vigilante. We finally introduce J. Jonah Jameson, who in this version is running a TV station, which uh, is kind of the one real big deviation from the mythology, but I guess it's all still basically the same. Um, it's the 90s. Who reads newspapers anymore? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not uh, like here in the 21st century. <laughs> Yeah, now Spider-Man is officially a wanted criminal and Peter has crossed a line with the realization that justice is something that exists only in the mind, not in a uniform or a badge or any symbol which our society sets up to represent it. That's very... He's like the Punisher. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am the law. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I almost wore a Judge Dredd shirt and then I remembered no logos. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I keep forgetting that too. I almost wore my Spider-Man shirt. Um... Let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah, now we get to the scene where Mary Jane is almost raped. There's a lot of just horrible things <laughs> happening to Mary Jane. Well, I, th- I think he, lived in a, he wanted to put, I think the, uh, there's a conscious effort to put Spider Man in a rough and tumble, messed up world. And yeah. this one, there's a real conscious effort that there's there's no like even the, the bad guy with the electric powers refuses. There's there's a whole passage about the guy with the electric powers is like he refuses vulgar uh, displays of power, preferring to go into back rooms and shock the hell out of people in yeah. private or whatever. whatever. Or unless it's <laughs> you know. Act Three, in which case lots yeah, of vulgar. Exact, yeah. Exactly. It, the uh, the other thing I I think that's a, a great point, and it also brings up the fact that in what it was 1992, 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our experience with superhero movies were Superman and Tim Burton's Batman, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly um, Batman uh, in Tim Burton's hands had a very sort of uh, dark fairy tale kind of a feel. But nobody had really attempted to break ground, I think, the way that Cameron was trying to break ground and just trying to peek into the man's head, mm. it feels like that that must have been part of the thought process. What hasn't mm. been done? How is this not Superman? How is this not Batman? How is Spider-Man a hero who is who exists on this on a street level? Which I think is fascinating. Um, but again, you know, for me, what happens in this scriptment is he does lose some of the joy. Because mm. there is that joy we get from Peter Parker in the comics. It's why we love him. It's not just so we can empathize with him. It's it's also, man, when he's like swinging above the city, he loves swinging above the city. You know, and that's the part I think that Cameron forgot. Well, to that mm. end, uh, we got a good Spider-Man line here oh, at shit. the bottom of page 30. Okay. If you want to just read that. Sure. This, is, this is after he saves Mary Jane from the rapists. A few worthless chunks of vomit show your faces around here again. I'll decorate my Christmas tree with your intestines. Got it? <laughs> <laughs> The joyful, Full of right? Joy. right? Full of joy. The melody of joy. kindness and also oh. the sticky stuff that comes out of your wrist. This is caracal. Pearlescent milk of passion. Well, and then fulfilling, fulfilling his... Fulfilling his desire that stated earlier that he wished that he could save her from a burning building so she'd make out with him. He saves Mm. her from the rape, and then they go up to the top of the globe from the 1964 World's Fair uh, and make out. Yeah. So. Cool. He did it. (laughs) And it was really organic. All I had to do was stalk her for 15 days until she was accosted. (laughs) (laughs) Organic, baby. Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And now he meets... He meets with Cordelia and meets with Strand. Um, and basically in this, we're kind of talking about as far as what's his motivation, Strand. He's basically like Mr. Glass from the Unbreakable <laughs> movies yeah. where he's just like, I'm fascinated by other people who have superpowers and I want to form my own little umbrella academy and all hang out together. <laughs> basically, yeah. yeah. Exceptional people touched by fate. That's the way he kind of puts it. Show us on the doll where fate touched you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, out of five billion people, there are special. Uh, out of five billion people, they are the special ones, meaning like him and Boyd and Spider Man. Not freaks, but masters, each created by a fluke of technology. It is a new form of evolution. Um, it, like, he's kind of like Ayn Randian in a way, too. There's a lot of exceptionalism going on here. The huddled masses exist in their vicious ignorance and limitations to lift a few exceptional people on their shoulders, however unwillingly. So there's some good villainy ideas Mm. here, but as you were saying earlier, like, really the conflict is just that he wants Spider-Man to be his buddy, and then starting around this scene, Spider-Man's like, no. 
I yeah. don't want to be your buddy. That He's is. like, you will be yeah. my buddy. Yeah. We will be best friends. Dude, the per- the and person, nothing will stop us. Yeah, the person who designed the intricate lattice work that is aliens and the person who designed the the the, the way the T-1000 and all This is the... My, you can't be only be my buddy? Why don't <laughs> yeah. you want to be my buddy? <laughs> right. I got electrical power. I'm the director. I mean, uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know what? It's happened again. Oh, it happened again. I think we're going to have to turn this into a part four episode. Uh, so let's wrap things up right here. Um, and we'll pick it up again in part four. Um, Hunting and escaping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hunting and escaping. I will wait to the end of part four to give you guys a chance to pitch your own stuff. But, you know, I listen to Ed's podcast, Nerd Goat. Uh, go see Ashley's movies like X-Men First Class, Thor, um, Agent Cody Banks. Am I right? Yeah. And you can listen to me on the 430 movie. Uh, and you can follow Steve and I and Best Movies Never Made on Instagram, and we're on Twitter as Never Made Film. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. If you're a fan of the ch- podcast, why don't you subscribe and rate us and don't give us bad ratings. Uh, you may also want to check out Electric Sur- Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 Movie every Friday, in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies and Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, available every Saturday wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including our producers Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. So until next time, this is... Steven Scarlatta. And I'm Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.